Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's readings come from Westy Martin by Percy Keese Fitzhugh, published in 1921. Westy Martin is a young boy scout that loves an adventure. When he finds himself in the woods with his rifle, it's possible that he finds more of an adventure than he was expecting. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get the good night's rest that they need so they can have a productive day and achieve what they need to achieve. I will read you a different story every episode to help you doze off. I'd like to say thank you to Ranu from Switzerland for your lovely iTunes review. A massive thank you goes to Paula Chamberlain, who has become a supporter of the show for $4.99 per month. It's gestures such as this that allow me to bring out more episodes to help you get some rest. If the show is helping you get some rest, I'd love for you to become a supporter at boreyoutosleep.com. If you want to help but your budget doesn't allow it, please leave a review and rating in your podcast app. It all helps. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. Westy Martin by Percy Keese Fitzhugh Chapter 1 A quick Sharp report rent the air, followed several seconds of death-like silence. Then the lesser sound of a twig falling in the still forest. Again, silence. A silence, tense, portentous. Then the sound of foliage being disturbed and of someone running. Westy Martin paused, every nerve on edge. It was odd that a boy who carried his own rifle slung over his shoulder should experience a kind of panic fear after the first shocking sound of a gunshot. He had many times heard the report of his own gun, but never where it could do harm. Never in the solemn depths of the forest. He did not reach for his gun now to be ready for danger. Strangely enough, he feared to touch it. Instead, he stood stark still and looked about him. Whatever had happened must have been very near to him. Without moving, for indeed he could not for the moment move a step, 
he saw a large leaf with a hole through the middle of it, and this hung not ten feet distant. He shuddered at the realisation that the whizzing bullet which had made that little hole might as easily have blotted out his young life. He paused, listening, his heart in his throat. Someone had run away. Had the fugitive seen him? And what had the fugitive done that he should flee at the sight or sound of a human presence? Suddenly it occurred to Westy that a second shot might lay him low. What if the fugitive, a murderer, had sought concealment at a distance and should try to conceal the one murder with another? Westy called and his voice sounded strange to him in the silent forest. Don't shoot. That would warn the unseen gunman unless, indeed, it was his purpose to shoot. There was no sound, no answering voice, no patter of distant foothills, nothing but the cheery song of a cricket near at hand. Westy advanced a few steps in the dim, solemn woods, looking to the right and left. Chapter 2 A Promise Westy Martin was a scout of the first class. He was a member of the first Bridgeboro Troop of Bridgeboro, New Jersey. Notwithstanding that he was a serious boy, he belonged to the Silver Fox Patrol, presided over by Roy Blakely. According to Pee Wee Harris of the Raven Patrol, Westy was the only Silver Fox who was not crazy. Yet in one way he was crazy. He was crazy to go out west. He had even saved up a hundred dollars toward a projected trip to Yellowstone National Park. He did not know exactly when or how he would be able to make this trip alone, but one saves up for all sorts of things unplanned. To date, Westy had only the $100 and the dream of going. When he had saved another hundred, he would begin to develop plans. I'll tell you what to do, Westy's father had said to him. You go up to Uncle Dick's and spend the summer and help around. You know what Uncle Dick told you. Any summer, he'd be glad to have you help around the farm and be glad to pay you so much a week. There's your chance, my boy. At Temple Camp, you can't earn any money. 
my suggestion is that you pass up Temple Camp this summer and go up on the farm. By next summer, maybe, you'll have enough to go west and I'll help you out, he added significantly. I may even go with you myself and take a look at those geezers or geysers or whatever they call them. I'd kind of half like to get a squint at a grizzly myself. Oh boy, said Westy. I wish I were, said his father. Well, I guess I'll do that, said Westy hesitatingly. He liked Temple Camp and the troop, and the independent enterprise proposed by his father was not to be considered without certain lingering regrets. It will be sort of like camping in a way, he said wistfully. I can take my cooking set and my rifle. I don't think I'd take the rifle if I were you, said Mr. Martin, in the chummy way he had when talking with Westy. Jiminy's, I'd hate to leave at home, said Westy, a little surprised and disappointed. Well, you'll be working up there and won't have much time to use it, said Mr. Martin. Westy sensed that this was not his father's true reason for objecting to the rifle. The son recalled that his father had been no more than lukewarm when the purchase of the rifle had first been proposed. Mr. Martin did not like rifles. He had observed, as several million other people had observed, that it is always the gun which is not loaded that kills people. The purchase of the coveted rifle had not closed the matter. The rifle had done no harm. That was the trouble. It had not even killed Mr. Martin's haunting fears. Westy was straightforward enough to take his father's true meaning and to ignore the one which he had been given. It left his father a little chagrined, but just the same he liked this straightforwardness in Westy. Oh, there'd be time enough to use it up there, Westy said. And if there wasn't any time, why then I couldn't use it, that's all. There wouldn't be any harm taking it. I promised you I'd never shoot at anything but targets, and I never have. I know you haven't, but up there, why... There are lots of. There's just one thing up there that I'm thinking about, said Westy plainly, and that's the side of the big barn where I can put a target. That's the only thing I want to shoot at, believe me. 
and I've got two eyes in my head to see if anybody is around who might get hit. That big red barn is like, why? It's just like a building in the middle of the Sahara Desert. I don't see why you're still worrying. How do you know what's back of the target? Mr. Martin asked. How do you know who's inside the barn? If I just tell you, I'll be careful. I should think that would be enough, said Westy. Well, it is, said Mr. Martin heartily. And I'll promise you again, so you can be sure. I don't want any more promises about you're not shooting at anything but targets, my boy, said Mr. Martin. You gave me your promise a month ago, and that is enough. But I want you to promise me again that you'll be careful. Do you understand? I tell you what I'll do, Dad, said he. First, I'll see that there's nobody in the barn. Then I'll lock the barn doors. Then I'll get a big sheet of iron that I saw up there. And I'll hang it on the side of the barn. Then I'll paste the target against that, see? No bullet could get through that iron, and it's about, oh, five times larger than the target. Suppose your shot should go wild and hit those old punky boards beyond the edge of the iron sheet, Mr. Martin asked. Good night. You're a scream, laughed Westy. Mr. Martin, as usual, was caught by his son's honest, wholesome good humour. I suppose you think I might shoot in the wrong direction and hit one of those grizzlies out in Yellowstone Park, Westy laughed. Safety first is your middle name, all right. Well, you go up to Uncle Dick's and don't point your gun out west, said Mr. Martin. And maybe we can talk your mother into letting us go to Yellowstone next year. And will you make me a promise, asked Westy. Well, what is it? That you won't worry. Chapter 3 The Parting the farm on which Westy spent one of the pleasantest summers of his life was about 70 miles from his New Jersey home and the grizzlies in Yellowstone Park were safe. But he thought of that wonderland of the Rockies in his working hours and especially when he roamed the woods following the trails of little animals or stalking and photographing birds. The only shooting he did on these trips was his trusty camera. Sometimes in the cool of the late afternoon, he would try his skill at hitting the bullseye 
and after each of these murderous forays against the innocent pasteboard, he would wrap his precious rifle up in its oily cloth and stand it in the corner of his room. No drop of blood was shed by the sturdy scout who had given his promise to be careful and who also knew how to be careful. The only place where he ever went gunning was in a huge book which reposed on the marble-topped centre table in the sitting room of his uncle's farmhouse. This book, which abounded in stirring pictures, described the exploits of famous hunters in Africa. The book had been purchased from a loquacious agent and was intended to be ornamental as well as entertaining. It being one of the very few books available on the farm, Westy made it a sort of constant companion, sitting before it each night under the smelly hanging lamp and spending hours in the African jungle with man-eating lions and tigers. We are not to take note of Westy's pleasant summer at this farm, for it is with the altogether extraordinary event which terminated his holiday that our story begins. His uncle had given him eight dollars a week, which, with what he had brought from home, made a total of something over a hundred dollars, which he had when he was ready to start home. This he intended to add to his Yellowstone Park Fund when he reached Bridgeboro. He felt very rich and a little nervous with a hundred dollars or more in his possession. But it was not for that reason that he carried his rifle on the day he started for home. He carried it because it was the most treasured possession, excepting his hundred dollars. He told his aunt and uncle, and he told himself, that he carried it because it could not easily be put in his trunk, except by jamming it in cornerwise. But the main reason he carried it was because he loved it, and he just wanted to have it with him. He might have caught a train on the branch line at Dawson's, which was the nearest station to his uncle's farm. He would then have to change to the main line at Chandler. He decided to send his trunk from Dawson's and to hike through the woods to Chandler, some three or four miles distance. His aunt and uncle and Ira, the farmhand, stood on the old-fashioned porch to bid him goodbye. And in that moment of parting, Aunt Myra was struck with a thought 
which may perhaps appeal to you who have read of Westy and have a certain slight acquaintance with him. It was the thought of how she had enjoyed his helpful visit and how she would miss him now that he was gone. Pee-wee Harris, with all his startling originality, would have wearied her perhaps. Two weeks of Roy Blakely's continuous nonsense would have been enough for this quiet old lady. There was nothing in particular about Westy. He was just a wholesome, well-balanced boy. She had not wearied of him. The scouts of his troop never wearied of him and never made a hero of him either. He was just Westy, but there was a gaping void at Temple Camp that summer because he was not there and there was going to be a gaping void in this quiet household on the farm after he had gone away. That was always the way it was with Westy. He never witnessed his own triumphs because his triumphs occurred in his absence. He was sadly missed, but how could he see this? He looked natty enough in his negligee khaki attire, with his rifle slung over his shoulder. We're just going to miss you a right good lot, said Aunt with affectionate vehemence. And don't forget you're going to come up and see us in winter. I want to, said Westy. Ira, the farmhand, was seated on the carriage step, smoking an atrocious pipe, which he removed from his mouth long enough to bid Westy goodbye, in his humorous, drawling way. The two had been great friends. I reckon you'd like to get a bead on a nice, big, hissin' wildcat, and that gull-blamed toy, wouldn't you now, huh? And go long with you, said Aunt Myra. He wouldn't nothing of the kind. Westy smiled good-naturedly. Wouldn't you now, persisted Ira. I seed I'm reading about them hunters in Africa, Dropping lions and tigers and what else? I bet you'd like to get one good plunk at a wildcat now, wouldn't you? Kaplunk just like that, hey? Then you'd feel like a regular Teddy Roosevelt, huh? Ira accompanied this intentional, tempting banter with a demonstration of aiming and firing. Westy laughed. I wouldn't mind being like Roosevelt, he said. You couldn't drop an elephant at six yards, laughed Ira. 
Well, I guess I won't meet any elephants in the woods between here and Chandler, Westy said. Don't put no such ideas in your head, said Aunt Myra, as she embraced her nephew affectionately. Then he was gone. I don't see why you want to always be pestering the poor boy, complained Aunt Myra, as Ira lowered his lanky legs to the ground, preparatory to standing on them. He had been a sort of evil genius all summer, beguiling Westy with enticing pictures of all sorts of perilous exploits out of his own abounding experiences on land and sea. You'd like to have him running away to sea with your yarns of whaling and shipwrecks, Aunt Myra continued. And it's just a parcel of lies, Ira Hasbrook, and you know it as well as I do. Like enough, he'll shoot at a woodchuck or a skunk, and kill one of Atwood's crows. They're always getting into the woods. No, he won't neither, said her husband. I say like enough he might, persisted Aunt Myra. Wasn't he crazy about that book? I didn't write the book, drawled Ira. No, but you told him how to skin a bear. That's better than being a book agent and skinning a farmer, drawled Ira. It's about the only thing you didn't tell him you was, Aunt Myra retorted. Acknowledging which, Ira puffed at his pipe leisurely and contemplated Aunt Myra with a whimsical air. I meant, geez, what I said, Ira Hasbrook, said she. The kid's all right, said Ira. I don't think he could hit anything further than ten feet. But he's all right, just the same. We're going to miss him, aren't we, auntie? But they did not miss him for long, for they were destined to see him again before the day was over. Chapter 4 The Sufferer In truth, if this were a narrative of Isaac Hasbrook's adventures, it might not be thought lively reading of the dime novel variety. He had not, as he had confided to Westy, limited his killing exploits to swatting flies. He was one of those universal characters who have a way of drifting finally to farms, and he had not abridged his tales of sprightly adventure in imparting them to Westy. He had been to sea on a New Bedford whaler he had shot big game in the Rockies. He had lived on a ranch. His star performance had been a liberal participation 
in the kidnapping of a despotic king in a small South Sea island. Naturally, so lively an adventurer had nothing but contempt for a pasteboard target, and though he did not willfully undertake to alienate Westy from his code of conduct, he had so continually represented to him the thrilling glories of the chase that Aunt Myra had very naturally suffered some haunting apprehensions that her nephew might depart impulsively on some piratical cruise or Indian killing enterprise. These vague fears had simmered down at last to the ludicrous dread that her departing nephew, whom she had come to know and love, might under the inspiration of the satanic ira celebrate his departure from the country by laying low some innocent cow in attempting to drop an undesirable woodchuck. She had come to have a very horror of the word drop which occurred so frequently in Ira's tales of adventure. But Aunt Myra's fears were needless. Westy had been Ira's companion, without being his disciple. In his quiet way, he had understood Ira thoroughly, the same as in his quiet way he understood Roy Blakely, and Pee-wee Harris thoroughly. The cows, even the woodchucks, were safe. The shot which turned the tide of Westy Martin's life was not out of his own precious rifle. He had not taken many steps after hearing the shot when he came upon the effect of it a small deer lay a few feet off the trail. The beautiful creature was quite motionless, and though it lay prone on its side, with the head flat upon the ground, its gracefulness was apparent, even striking. It lay in a sort of bower and low-hanging foliage, and had a certain harmony with the forest, which even its stricken state had somewhat unnatural attitude could not destroy. As Westy first glimpsed this silent, uncomplaining victim, a feeling which could hardly be called a thought came to him. It was just this that the cruelty which had wrought this piteous spectacle was doubly cruel for that the creature had been laid low in its own home. The friendly, enveloping foliage revealed this helpless denizen of the woods as a sorrowing mother might show her deceased child to a sympathising friend. 
Such thoughts did not take form in the mind of the tremulous boy, but he had some such feeling. He was thoughtful enough even at the moment to wonder how, how he could have taken such delight in stories of wholesale killings. One side of the actual thing aroused anger and pity. He approached a little nearer, this scout with a rifle over his shoulder, and beheld something which startled, almost unnerved him. He could see only one of the eyes, for the deer lay on its side, but this eye was soft and seemed not unfriendly. It was not a startled eye. The beautiful animal was not dead. He did not know how much it might be suffering, but at all events its suffering was not over, and there was a kind of resignation in the soft look of that single eye, just a kind of silent acceptance of its plight which went to the boy's heart. Who had done this thing against the good law of the state and in disregard of every humane obligation? Who had fled leaving this beautiful inhabitant of the quiet woods in agony? The leaves stirred gently above it in the soothing breeze, A gay little bird chirped a malady in the overhanging branches as if to beguile it in suffering. And the soft, gentle eye seemed full of an infinite patience as it looked at Westy. He was face to face with one of the sporting exploits of that horrible toy, the rifle. For just a moment it seemed as if the stricken deer were looking at his own rifle as if in quiet curiosity. Then he noticed a tiny wound and a little trickle of blood on the creature's side. It made a striking contrast, the crimson and the dull grey. Chapter 5 Westy recalled these words in the mammoth volume on the sitting room table at the farm. He had admired, even been thrilled, at the heroic picture of the great hunter whose exploits in the Maine woods were so flatteringly recorded. It had not at the time occurred to him that the noble stag might have looked like a statue too. Well, here was the actual result of such flaunted heroism, and Westy did not like it. It was quite a different sort of picture. Then suddenly, it occurred to him that he was to blame for this pitiful spectacle. 
He who shoots does not always kill, but he who shoots intends to kill. If the fugitive had failed of his purpose, it was because he had been frightened at the sound of someone near at hand. The shooting season was not on. It had been a stolen, lawless shot. A feeling of anger, even of hate, was aroused in Westy's mind against the ruthless violator of the law who had been forced to save himself by flight before his lawless deed was completed. He had probably thought that the footfalls those of a game warden To shoot game out of season was bad enough as it seemed to the scout. To shoot living things seemed now bereft of all glory to the sensitive boy. But to shoot and not kill and then run away seemed horrible. This poor deer might suffer for hours. Westy had seen a little demonstration of the kind of thing he had been reading and hearing about. Through the medium of the alluring printed page, he had been present at buffalo hunts. He had seen kindly, intelligent elephants laid low. And here he was seething with rage, that the blood of this harmless, beautiful creature had been shed and shed to no purpose. But Westy was more than a sensitive boy. He was a scout, and a scout has ever a sense of responsibility. It was futile to consider what some stranger had done while this poor creature lay suffering. All that he had read and heard about hunting big game, and all such stuff was forgotten in the consciousness of a present duty. He, Westy Martin, must put this deer out of its suffering. He must help it move on to the next life. The owner of the precious rifle, all shiny and oily, shuddered. He, scout of the first class, must finish the work which some criminal wretch had begun. He was essentially too honest to take refuge in his promise not to shoot at anything but a target. He had a momentary thought of that, and then was ashamed of it. Phrases familiar to him ran through his head. Serious boy that he was. He had always been a reader of the handbook. A scout is helpful. A scout is friendly to all. A scout is kind. 
He is a friend to the animals. He will not kill nor hurt. Yet he was not friendly to all. He was enraged at the absent destroyer who had made it necessary for him to do something he could not bear to do. He wished that Ira were here to do it instead. He who had admired the great hunter crouching behind a rock wished now that the mighty hunter might be present to attend to this miserable business. He had never dreamed of such an emergency, of such a duty. He wished that one or the other of the sprightly youngsters in the advertisements, who were so ready with their firearms, might shoot for once in this humane cause. Poor Westy, he was just a boy, after all. I hope you've enjoyed listening to that bedtime story and I hope you're feeling a little drowsy. If you're not quite sleepy yet, please feel free to listen to another episode. In the meantime, I look forward to bringing you another episode very soon. Until then, good night.